0: to the coffee critiques and cracked pottery podcast this podcast is a biweekly exploration of topics and tangents running from food to literature and politics to pop culture i am your host ray a card-carrying citizen of flyover country where things are never quite as simple as you imagine <laughs> You are joining me for the third episode of Coffee, Critiques, and Cracked Pottery. That's right. Three whole episodes. I'm actually surprised it lasted this long. It's tough, you know. The pressure is killing me. I'm just kidding. Anyway, today is uh, April 23rd, Tuesday. But it's like almost 10 o'clock at night. I know, I know. I should be in bed at my age, but you know, I'm not. Um, so I've been kind of putting off doing this bit of the show because I don't know why. I think I was just still trying to recuperate from last weekend. I worked the flood run, which is kind of a many decades long traditional event. I think money goes to charity and some other stuff. But it's for motorcycle enthusiasts who drive around the upper pools of the Mississippi between Minnesota and Wisconsin. It's pretty cool. The weather this year was really great for it. Um, And, of course, they call it the flood run. We don't always have a flood, but we do this year. In fact, yesterday, the Mississippi up here on the pool that I live on, crested at 15.0. one feet yesterday so we actually have a flood it's not like a big thing right now but when it's like this and kind of sustained high water early in the year if we get a lot of rain in like may and june it can get kind of hairy um the last time we had like a super bad flood where i live right now it was 1965 but i mean there's been a couple I think two thousand thirteen we had some pretty significant high water here, and uh, if I remember nineteen ninety seven was also a really landmark high water here along the upper Mississippi between international Falls and Minnesota in iowa um other plates for places further south, I don't really pay much of attention to. I suppose I ought. Um, but I don't really, because it's not necessarily going to impact us up here. Anyway, um, so that was last weekend. It was super busy. It was a huge success flood run this year. I don't know how many thousands of people were here. I know that we, where I work, fed probably at least a thousand people, maybe more. I don't really know what the final numbers were. I didn't get a chance to ask my boss, but it was crazy. Craziness. Where it's a, a, a pretty much a 12-hour day on Saturday during the flood run. And lots and lots of hungry, hungry bikers. So it was fun. Um, I did want to note early to the, into the episode that I'm going to be changing platforms from Podbean to Anchor. And just a brief why is because these podcasts have been kind of long. And I like to do things with a good amount of quality to the sound. And I've had to like squish and compress my Podbean podcast so much in order to stay under their monthly cap for data that it's been kind of a pain in the butt. And the other is that I think based on my cap for data, I'm not going to be able to get two episodes a month on Podbean really so at least not without paying their premium and I right now I'm just not financially in a position where I can afford that um I left my fancy high-paying job because it sucked to go into waitressing <laughs> which is really hard but doesn't suck and that's just not paying it right now I have other bills I gotta pay like my rent and you know groceries and car insurance and gas in my car to get to and from work and hoping against hope that something wonderful happens that I manifest more bounty in my life in some way or another winning a lottery would be great um but at any rate I really can't afford that and um So Anchor is free and they do, I think, a really good job of like spreading your content out across several different platforms. So I'm going to just, you know, kind of make the hippity hop over there. If I can get this episode on Podbean this time, that'll be great. And if I can't, well, I'll let everybody that is following me, I hope, know on Podbean that they can follow me on Anchor or they can follow me on Spotify or any of the other five platforms now that this podcast will be available through Anchor as they distribute it. So which is super cool. Um, So I'm gonna I'll post all that stuff in the show notes. That's the other thing too is I get actual show notes at Anchor as opposed to like the 250 character limit that I get to describe whatever it is I'm going to be doing on Podbean, unless i want to pay ten dollars a month to user service which isn't a lot but like i said i right now i'm just don't have the financial wherewithal to do that um and i don't have enough of you guys that i would even feel comfortable doing a patreon so that i could afford that so we're just gonna go with moving right now to anchor and hopefully that's my final resting place for this podcast from here on in you'll be able to follow most of my stuff on anchor those of you i know a great deal of you follow me on spotify and it anchor is great because it just auto posts everything that i do to spotify so i don't even have to worry about it so you guys will not miss anything there won't be any trouble and it's not like i've had to do with spotify in the past which is upload my material myself they just distribute it so it's wonderful i can just Put the sucker on iAnchor and it goes out into the internets and poof, it's available. It's pretty fabulous. So once we, now that we've talked about that, kind of got that out of the way. I also want to mention that I've gotten a little bit of feedback from you guys, but like most of it has been in PMs, which is fine. I'm okay with that. But it's only really been two people. <laughs> um, I see thumbs ups and stuff and I can see my analytics, at, at least at Spotify, that people have started the program. Some of you have listened to the whole thing. Some of you have downloaded it. But I'm not getting a lot of feedback, and I, I would like a little feedback from y'all. So um, I'm going to just encourage you to follow me on Twitter. Um, to make sure that you have liked the Facebook page. Um. And I will also put up my WordPress page for this podcast, the URL for that, also in the notes for today's show, along with my Twitter and the rest of it that's just for Coffee Critiques and Crack Pottery. And you can follow me there, you can ask me questions, you can make show ideas, suggestions, you can... You know, yell at me about the things they say on here, disagree or share silly memery or, you know, stick some things in front of me in terms of attention for stuff you might want to hear me go off the rails on at the end of the show for crack the Crack Pottery section. Um, or if you guys have an event that's coming up for whatever it is, it's your church events, it's your coven event, it's your grandma's 60th wedding anniversary, and they're having, I don't know, ice cream social, I don't care. If you're in a band, if you're in a comedy troupe, I, you know, I have friends do all those things. You know, please poke me on any one of those social media, make sure that you, you know, you at me or hashtag me so that I know that you're talking. So I get it. And I will in this opening section, when I do the calendar part, I will try to get your events on so that other people that I know that you might know know, that you might really like, and they might really like you or what you do, I can get you all hooked up together in a, you know, big swirly of happiness and friendship. Like, it'd be really awesome. Because that's kind of the idea of doing this. And also, you know, selfishly, I promote things that are going on where I live, because then if any of y'all get a chance to come up my way, and I'm not inundated with other things to do you know we could hang out or we might run into each other somewhere and you can tell me to my face that you think my politics are stupid anyway so those are all things I will provide all of those links and opportunities to give me feedback about the show in the show notes today because I actually have some I'm so excited about that part I shouldn't be but I really am because what I really am is despite the fact that I do talk a lot is I I, I'm a writer. So, you know, it's exciting to be able to like, "Ah," have people write to me, you know, you could do that. I like that. It makes me happy too. I like to see it. Um, I will suggest, however, if you're going to be, you know, rag on me hard. Remember, I'm also a snowflake. (laughs) Fuck. I hate that word. Okay. But, um, you know, I'm a human being. And I have been known, when trampled by elephants, to get out the bazooka. So, there's that. But, I mean, just in general. I want to hear your feedback. We don't have to agree on everything. I've said that before. It doesn't mean I'm going to lay down and go, oh, no. Um, And I don't expect you to either. We can all respectfully agree to disagree, I hope, most of the time. I'm not going to, I don't know, if that crackpot... But And I get pretty excited about some of this stuff, particularly the Cheeto and Sheep. There might be a couple of blind spots in my ability to, like, cognitively reel it in on an emotive level. But, you know, we'll see what happens. But in either case, I really want to hear what you guys have to say. And, again, if you have, you know, story ideas or things that you want to do or you want to talk about a project you're involved in and you're doing in the area or not doing in the area but just doing or you know you, you side project things that you're interested in that you think would fit the format of the show or you just like to have one of these jam sessions verbally with me um you know let me know as cuz I'm open I'm an, I'm open to these these ideas I'm all the time ready to go especially would like to put out a call to any of you who've been watching the last two seasons of uh, Handmaid's Tale, and we're, I think, also on our, we will be on our third season or fourth season of Harlots, because I kind of have a special project in mind I'd like to do for those when God is over, because reasons. I, if you've been watching those shows, and particularly if you've watched those shows and have read Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, and or are familiar with the Coventry Girls in English history, I would really like to, like, get with you to plan a couple shows or maybe an entirely other podcast. True facts. Because it's a place that there isn't much. There's not much for Handmaid's Tale podcasts. There's a couple, but not a lot. And there's not really any for Harlots. And they have huge fan bases. And there's a lot of really... I think valuable stuff to take from both of those shows, and I'd like to do them in a comparative way. So um, if you are into that idea at all, any of you who are listening and could make a commitment, please, please, please contact me. We can work something out one way or the other to get together to do a podcast. Maybe it would only be a monthly thing. I don't know. We'll see. Anyway, so that's that. And then let's see. I arrived to look at my show notes here. Oh, we get time for the community calendar portion of our show. So um, I put this together on Google Calendars this time, so I'm not like scrounging around looking at paper today. Um, so I'm going to just tomorrow, April twenty fourth, two thousand nineteen. I would like to mention that there is going to be an interesting program. At the Broadway Theater in Wabasha, Minnesota, called "Decoding the Driftless," and so it's about the Driftless Zone, which is where we live—the um, non-glaciated, the unglaciated parts of Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, where the Mississippi River flowage exists and. I'm guessing this gets into some of the geo-archaeological information and the geomorphology of the area and its unique characteristics. Looks really interesting. That's going to be, at again, at the Broadway Theater in Wabasha tomorrow. It starts at 7 p.m. and goes till 8, and that is 611 Broadway Avenue in Wabasha should check that out if you're interested in that you happen to be like up this way say you're going to Wabasha for dinner or maybe up to Nelson for barbecue for dinner or you just happen to be around and you have a reason to be in Wabasha or you live in Wabasha I know maybe one or two of you do that might be something you want to check out um, and then let's see Thursday um, Willie Porter and Gay- Gaines Wagoneer And Leo will be at Leo and Leona's in Bangor, Wisconsin. For those of you who live a little closer to La Crosse. Um, And that is W1436, Wisconsin Highway 33 in Bangor. That's where that's at. Some music to check out on a Thursday night. It's kind of nice. And that's a pretty drive. It's 730. You know, you get the sunset thing. You could just, like, go on out there, hit... um, used to be some pretty good places to eat out that way if anybody knows any good spots like in that valley there um current ones because I mean we could talk all day about things that used to be there but I haven't been out to Bangor in ages however um Leo and Leona's I have heard of and heard good things and um Willie Porter and Gaines and Wagner should be fun or Wagner Gaines and Wagner maybe um, local. Um, let's see. Uh, we have on Friday the 26th a few things. Um, the first, or a couple things. The first thing is there is going to be a program called A Thousand Clowns at the Wabashaw Public Library. Now this is at 168 Allegheny Avenue in Wabashaw. It starts at 630 and I think it goes to 730. It's just a program about clowns. The history of clowning. And the art of clowning, which I think is really cool. You should check it out if you're into clowns and are up this way. And then, because I have to give a huge plug to my homeboy, Mark Croft. If any of you are down by Fitchburg tomorrow and have the opportunity to stop at Yahara Bay Distillers at 6250 Nesbit Road in Fitchburg. If you get there by 730 tomorrow, you will get to hear Mark Croft. The guy who does the music for my intro and my bumpers. He's amazing. He's a super sweet guy, guys. And he's just really a talented musician. You should definitely check it out. Now, Saturday is a super busy day. There's a shitload of stuff going on Saturday this week. First thing I want to mention is that... For anybody who is or was involved with the Tamarack and or Maplewood School out here, you should probably check out. They're going to have a school picnic actually out at the Winghaven Pizza Farm, which is at N18057 Grover Lane. Now, I don't know if anybody who hears this actually has anything, any connection to that school, but it is something that's going on. And for those of you who might or might know someone who does, check it out. It's at 1230 p.m. tomorrow or um, Saturday during the day and goes to like 130. And then this one is super cool. I love this. In Alma, Wisconsin, there is Castle Rock Museum, which is a super cool place personal private collection of a guy who just started collecting medieval arms and armor and it's he made it into a museum finally and he they are hosting a special display and program on saturday called women warriors i have to work so i'm gonna miss this thing but if anybody goes to it, i want to hear about it i want to hear what I want to hear about the whole program. I want to find out if it was good, if you enjoyed it, if you went at all. It starts at 2.30 and runs to 3.30. I believe those are the hours at Castle Rock Museum, which is 402 South 2nd Street in Alma. It is super cool. And even if you don't come up for that program, you should come up sometime and check out that museum. Fire in the Shire comes in in June sometime, and it's the local Ren Fair thing, and that's another good time to come in and check out the museum. Now, there is, in La Crosse, Todd Snyder with the Staley Brothers at the Cavalier Theater, which is at 118 Fifth Avenue North in La Crosse. They start at 7 p.m. It's a thing to check out. It's more music, local-ish. And then Ryan Howe is having a birthday bash at the Popcorn Tavern in La Crosse at 308 4th Street South in La Crosse. And that starts at 8.30. So you could literally go from the Todd Snyder gig um, at the Cavalier and then bop down to the popcorn after a while and check it out. Kind of like hit two things at once because they're only like eight blocks apart. Okay, so the next thing I've got on the schedule here is Thursday, May 2nd, Ryan Howe will also be playing at in Brownsville at the Saxon Hall which is at 20 or 702 Main Street in Brownsville. He starts at 6. So there's some music again on a Thursday night. A Thursday night music sounds like a really great idea to me. But this is a huge week weekend. There's a lot going on this first weekend in May. Beyond Beltane taking place on Wednesday. Tuesday night, Wednesday, which is, for those of you who don't know, is the Celtic fertility spring celebration, and for those of us who are paganly inclined and um, Celtic in origin, or even just love it, um, it's kind of a big deal. So that's, on. So say, you know, it's a, it's a thing. Um, I would sing you some Jonathan Colton right here, but maybe it's not appropriate. I'll probably just link that video on Beltane, because I usually do. Anyway, so um, I'm just going to mention then that Midwest Music Fest, the Winona Weekend of that, begins on friday ticket prices and all that stuff are available on midwest music fest facebook page i would definitely google that if you're at all interested but it starts i believe at three thirty on saturday or friday night friday afternoon in winona there's a bunch of good bands that are going to be playing different venues all over winona and to be perfectly honest, since it's the originating weekend and the originating location for Midwest Music Fest, I know this is gonna sound really crappy because I grew up in Lacrosse, but I'm just gonna plug this: the Winona end of this show is way better. Usually, you get better music. I know in the beginning, before Lacrosse joined it, there were some really fantastic groups, including Porcupine, which is a local band they get classified as Minneapolis a lot and it's a fair representation I guess but I mean I grew up with Casey Virac and he grew up in the Crescent I grew up in Alaska we knew we would have known each other since we were like freshmen in high school so like Minneapolis is not really a thing but Anyway, I mean, it is and it isn't. I, I I just think we should have more pride in where we, things that are like uniquely from the, the La Crosse area or the La Crescent area or the Winona area, as I, um, I'm stating here. instead of everything always get pointed, you know, to either Minneapolis or Madison or Milwaukee, how about if we stand up for our locale? But in either case. Midwest Music Fest is starts that weekend and is the Winona weekend of the show. It tends to be, in my opinion, better. If you're going to go check it out, you should definitely do that. I won't be able to because I'll be working. But you should go and enjoy the music. Also, that night, here in Alma, is comedy with Tom and Steph Clark at the Big River Theater and they start at 7 and go to 8. I'm not going to get to see that show either because work but if you're up this way for whatever reason up to Buena Vista Park checking out the river you should definitely slide down and get yourself some tickets and go check out the Big River Theater. It's pretty awesome and let's see This is probably the premier thing that you should or could do if you're in La Crosse. Or you get too sunburned at Midwest Music Fest in Winona earlier in the afternoon, evening, and you decide to go someplace cool. You go to La Crosse and hit the distillery and get some tapas and then take your happy butt up to the Cavalier Theater and see live from La Crosse. Because they are my friends. And they are fucking hilarious. I don't say that lightly. I say that with all the emphasis on my syllables. I can. It's They're fucking great. They're a great comedy group. You will be sad if you miss them. The title for this week's. This month's show. Or this season's show rather. Is like a real boy. I'm not even sure I want to know what that means. Maybe mike bobbers will tell me or the guy who does millennium fandom or maybe steve walker will tell me he's the director for live at lacrosse one of my very very best friends ever in life but i it scares me because i have a feeling there's a story behind this and it's the sort of thing that will make me laugh until i cry so there's that they're fabulous these, both of those two fellas are involved in this group, as, as I mentioned. And, and they're really just fabulous. Funny, funny shit. And Steve's wonderful wife, Michelle, is also in it. She's freaking hilarious. Someday I might dig out some, some video I have on my phone. I actually have video of her compromisingly drunk saying... Some pretty funny stuff, and I have some video of Mike Bubbers <laughs> too, I think, still on my phone from after a live show that I attended a few couple years ago. But anyway, they're going to be playing at the CAV. Um, if you don't know where the CAV is, that's terrible. You should know where the cab is. It is at 118 Fifth Avenue. North Lacrosse. I don't know the address, see, because I grew up there. So, like, I just know where it is. But you need to check it out. You need to check it out. If you don't have it, you it just you should go because it's they're great. They're really funny, and I can't diss my roomie. So you could definitely, if you're up here and you just don't have the gas money or you're just too tired to go all the way to Lacrosse, you can definitely go to Bill's Talk of the Town which is at 107 Main Street in Elma, and see PB&J play. That's P. Burkhart and Josie Lee. And definitely check out their show. They'll be doing some some musical renditions, some serenading in the little river town of Elma. Elma! And you don't want to miss that. So if you get a chance, you should check it out. And of course, there's probably a ton of shit going on I'm Cinco de Mayo, but I don't really know anything about it. I couldn't get there. So we'll work towards that at another point. I'll try to post some stuff on Facebook if anybody sends me any links to try to get you all hooked up with the cool, fun things for early May. So that's the nutshell of the community calendar. It's a little shorter than last time, I think, but maybe not. A lot of them sound like fun. I really, um, I don't think you could miss with any of those things I've suggested. They look like the cream of the crop to me. And anytime you get a chance to go see live, which is quarterly, if I remember correctly, they do four, se- four shows a year, um, or, you know, four seasons, which is like three days, I think, two, three days of shows that they do a year. It's just so worth it. It's just so worth it. You should go. And I can't recommend either Friday or Saturday night. I've seen them on both, like the cold night, like the first night. And I've seen them on Saturdays and they're loosened up. And I, you know, I don't see a difference. They're hilarious no matter when you go. So you should really check them out. So that's the community calendar part. And I think I'm done with coffeeing. These are the clutch things that I've had to say. It's time to move on to our topic for this week which was last week's game of thrones premiere oh my god so i don't want to wreck it and it's long enough as it is so i'm not gonna talk about it much here i might talk about it a little bit at the I, no i'm gonna to try to be good and not like drag it over into the end part of the show but anyway i think you'll enjoy it if you like god if you don't you know just don't listen to me it's fine it's fine i'm not hurt or anything i won't cry but I do, you know, a scene by scene breakdown. Pardon, I do a scene by scene breakdown. Hopefully, you'll enjoy it. Please do check out the show notes, and if you need to fast forward because you don't want to hear about God because of spoilers or whatever, and you just want to hear me rant at the end, I think it's like an hour and twenty minutes. So somewhere at the hour and twenty minute mark, you can you can drop back in. To the podcast, and probably not to have too much spoiled, and get right to the ranting bits. bum bum ba ba bum bum ba ba bum bum. Sound familiar? Yeah. So that was my really crappy version of the theme from Game of Thrones. So like I promised previously, this week's episode is going to basically be a scene-by-scene breakdown of Episode 1, Season 8, the final season of Game of Thrones, HBO's adaptation of George R.R. R. Martin's fabulous series of books called A Song of Ice and Fire. So you're going to have to strap on your panties or strap yourself in, I don't know, whatever, find a spot. If you're not a God fan, I'm sorry about this episode. Not really, though. So not at all. Um, if you are a God fan, I'm, I'm also not sorry about this episode. Because as much as I love Song of Ice and Fire, the books, the show, I love Little a little less. Just a little. Okay, sometimes a lot. But... I still will admit to anybody who asks that it's fantastic television. So there's that. I'm just not so keen on some of the things that happened the storyline. I kind of got into that last episode. Today, however, we're going to take a scene-by-scene breakdown. And, you know, last time when we were talking about fandoms, I complained about fan service. This is the other side of this coin. There's some fan service in this episode that I think is fabulous. And I'm going to point it out when I see it because it makes me happy. But I watched this episode last night um, as soon as it was available and really enjoyed it. So today I'm doing another watch through while I'm not like squeeing and screaming about how excited I am that here's the show. So that I have a little more time to percolate and think about it. And the takes for the recording... For this episode here, Coffee, Critiques and cracked Pottery will be in between scenes as I watch them. So it's like, try to get as visceral of a response to certain things as I can. And please, folks, if you're listening and you're enjoying any of these episodes, a- a- any of them at all, please don't be afraid to like drop me some feedback. I definitely want to hear it. And since I'm also talking about that, I'm going to let you guys know that I have talked to my great friends. Mike Bobbers, who runs Millennium Fandom, he and I have agreed we are going to get together after the close of Season 8 and do a crossover, coffee, critiques, and Millennium Fandom thing about GOT, so stay tuned for that. It'll be a full season breakdown I think and maybe by then Mike will be ready to like talk about some of the past seasons as well so we're got my hands got my fingers crossed let's go First and foremost I want to mention that these new opening credits are really pretty cool I was so anxious for the action on screen to start last night that I was not paying as much attention to those as I might have wanted to that and I think HBO's streaming service last night was a little less than clear for me here because there's so many people trying to watch the episode last night at the same time I was so it was a little pixelated and weird but today on this second watch through I'm just going through the credits now and it's it's actually pretty cool I like the changes that they've made King's Landing last night seemed to me very clockworky. I kinda like that. It was pretty interesting. So that's just a, a brief aside from the first the opening credits. Now as this episode opens, we are following a little fella, um probably about the same age that Bran and Arya were in episode one, season one. Running around Wintertown. Wintertown is the little town just outside Winterfell where all of the folks that farm Winterfell's lands and keep up, oh, you know, the stonemasons and the folks who do trading and that sort of thing that are associated with Winterfell Council that belongs to the Starks live. And This little fella is running around. It's a great callback, actually, to that first episode of Bran, chasing along the rooftops of Winterfell as he was watching Robert Baratheon's entourage approach Winterfell from the very first season. It's a nice callback, although I will admit that the coloring, of course, since winter has finally come, as the Stark words decry, it is colder. The colors are much colder, the very... Air is crisp, you can tell by the breath coming out of the people's mouths, and it has a much more ominous and dark feeling than the original scene, which is, of course, to be expected. We are coming into what is the end game for the Game of Thrones. And of course, Danny's army is much larger than Robert Baratheon's retinue. Just over the horizon, they're coming this phalanx is first of unsullied, followed then by the cavalry of the dothraki. It's pretty intense to be honest. um I'm enjoying it, I like the mood the very the very serious mood, everybody's faces are very serious, and this little boy you think about it, it's. From the perspective of Brynn having done this and Arya too bouncing around in episode one, season one, as they were anticipating the arrival of the king. This is anticipation of the arrival of the queen. But the people, of course, we get much more a feeling and a sense of the small folk because in episode one, season one, it opens really on Winterfell's courtyard far more so than it does in Wintertown. And so we're not really exposed to the small folks view or opinion of Robert Baratheon. But we are definitely getting a very quick sense of the small folks response to Daenerys Targaryen's arrival. Along beside Jon Snow, who last season they had their lords, their liege lords, had named as King of the North. Things have very much politically shifted since last season, and we are actually getting, for the first time, really a sense of what the small folk think. And it doesn't seem like they're horribly impressed. And now Daenerys and John come into view, and wow. So they look pretty boss on those horses, although it's interesting to note that John's face is sort of grim. He, I think he expects this is not going to be the best time he's had in a while. And Daenerys looks oddly uncertain and a little scared, which makes some sense. She really has spent all of her time learning kingcraft in Essos. And in doing so, she also created war, chaos, havoc, and bloodshed everywhere she went. And that was when she got there and when she left. I'm not sure, based on what we've seen in the show, that she really is fit to lead any group of people beyond the Dothraki who seem to think brute force is the way to go. Most of the folks that are city dwellers and quote-unquote civilized individuals, despite the talking of her Hand, Tyrion, and Varys, and other sundry other characters that have been around her throughout, they have some confidence in her abilities, but she has yet to really show, the long, on the long haul, a real commitment and capability of caring about the small folk. She freed all the slaves in Essos that she could get her hands on to free, and some of them are definitely well disposed to her, but at the same time, she completely... Ex- upheaved their economic system and left a lot of people without a way to survive, which becomes a political football a bit in previous seasons of Game of Thrones and definitely within the books. Moving from Jon, they cut then to Arya, who is actually in the crowd with the folks in Wintertown and not in the courtyard at Winterfell, anticipating her quote-unquote brother's return and... Daenerys Targaryen's arrival and she is both happy to see John, but there is definitely a undercurrent in her eyes and her body language about whether or not she trusts this whole thing and I think that's a reasonable position for Arya to be in she's not really in a place to be very trusting of anybody and if you all watched last season you know that it took a little bit for her and Sansa to warm back up to each other as well. So we'll have to wait and see how this plays out, but Maisie Williams is doing a great job right now, kind of showing us the internal workings of what goes on in Arya Stark's head. As Jon and Daenerys pass Arya, Jon of course does not see Arya, but Arya remains in the crowd, and it's interesting, you see the cart in which Varys and... Tyrion are riding. Behind them, however, comes Sander Clegane, the Hound, Arya's long-term traveling companion for a couple seasons in the midst of the series. And there's an interesting look on her face there, too, of both happiness, maybe, admiration, I think, and worry concern he used to be on her list her list of people that she was going to kill and she admitted while she was in the house of black and white that that list got shorter by one because she'd let him off the list and right behind sander clegane comes mr gendry gendry i think it's stone it's no what is it i can't remember now what the lands around King's Landing, bastards born in King's Landing or thereabouts, what their last name is. But Gendry is Robert Baratheon's bastard son. And he traveled with Arya for a while, too, when she first escaped King's Landing, of course, under Yorin's care, as a disguised as a boy, headed to the Wall to join the Night's Watch, where she knew that her brother John, or her quote-unquote brother John was, but Gendry and her got very close, and to the, so close in fact that Gendry was the first person, other than Jorin who knew who Arya actually was, and that she was a girl and not a boy. There's been a lot of talk amongst the fandom that that's a ship they'd like to see, is at the end of this, if Arya survives and Gendry also survives, that those two end up together. I'm not really sure if Sansa's destined to have a ship. I don't know, man. She's been through a lot of stuff. I'm not really sure she's the sort of girl who's going to just fall in love with some guy and marry and settle down and have babies like her mother wanted her to. So following that, we get a sort of a scene switch. It technically is, I guess. We have been outdoors, and now suddenly we're inside the cart with Tyrion and Varys, and they discuss the weather, which is pretty amusing. There's some... You always get with Peter Dinklage's portrayal of Tyrion, these kind of crack one-liners, and it's become a part of the relationship between Varys and Tyrion to have this little bit of clippy back and forth. It's reminiscent to some extent of Varys and Littlefinger's interplay early on in the series when those two were in almost daily contact but it's a little less sharply toned and a little less malignant because you understand very clearly in the beginning of this that Varys and Littlefinger were not friends, not really. They were opposing players and everyone else in the show were basically pawns or other parts of the normal chessboard and that these two men were working at cross purposes. This scene is pretty funny. There's another ball joke, which has become kind of stock-and-trade between Tyrion and Varys because Varys is a unit. This scene is pretty good. I mean, it's not really a built-up reunion for what the rest of the show ends up being as a series of highly anticipated reunions and first peeks at some tensions that we all have expected to arise eventually. So it's not really important scene. I don't feel it doesn't really add anything to the storyline, but it certainly does remind us or get us back in our Game of Thrones mode, and it does put Tyrion in front of us pretty early on in the episode for a guy who, for the rest of the episode, is pretty much understated and not really necessary to the major action, but his fans are going to have to see him in the first episode, or they'll be hell to pay, I'm sure. The brief as that is, we then swing the camera back out and we encounter Grey Room and Miss Sandy. Now this is an interesting little bit because those two are riding side by side, of course, and we all know that they have their odd relationship as well. But they look really uncomfortable. They are by nature of the actors and where their origins are in Planetos, as some people in the fandom call the entire world that encompasses Westeros, which is where most of Game of Thrones take place, and Essos, which is where Daenerys has been before she comes back to Westeros. And these guys come from a place where folks are more melanated, so they look black, as we would use in the common parlance. So they're pretty out of the norm for folks in Wintertown, Town who are all, by and large, look to be some kind of Northern European or European or of European descent. And there's some strange looks that interpass between them and the crowds and the rest. I'm not really sure if their showrunners are going to go for some kind of odd racism stuff at some point in this season. We've never really got that feel from any of this stuff. There were some cultural disparaging Things that went on between different groups of people. But actual racism based on skin color has not been one of those things that's been delved into in the show. And it seems, for, to me, out of place. But we'll see where, where they're going with this later in the season, I guess. It's so after that brief little thing about Miss Sandy and Grey Worm, they swing back to John and Daenerys. And they're talking, and Daenerys is still looking a little bit perturbed that they're, like, not throwing rose petals. That The folks at Wintertown are like looking at her, like, Yeah, okay, so now what? Um, and she says, You know, she's she doesn't say, but she looks around and John mentions an aside, you know, I told you that northerners don't trust people from not around here, they're not into it. Um, and she looks a little miffed like she's being disrespected somehow because they're not all like, Yay, queen, um, or falling on their knees. I'm not really sure. She's used to, you know going everywhere in Essos by a chance of Misa Misa nobody here gives a shit who you are Daenerys it's not who you were yesterday that matters it's who you are today that is definitely a thing with the people of the north it doesn't matter who you were yesterday it matters who you are today so they're not impressed and then as if on cue cuz of course they were cute come the dragons here comes Drogon and Rhaegal and they swoop down over winter town and the crowds of sounds come up and they're all oh, and some people are panicking and some people are gasping and some people are oh my gosh and it's whatever and of course it's just you know a cinematic moment and a thing about yeah and then generis gets a shit-eating grin on her face like yeah that's right i'm the queen bitch i'm the queen and as if to make matters worse Rhaegal and Drogon fly over Winterfell itself while Sansa is out on the pear pits, scanning her domain as Lady of Winterfell. <laughs> and those dragons go over. And she gets a look on her face that you're not quite sure. It's sort of like the one that Cersei had when Daenerys shows up in in King's Landing at the Dragon Pits mid-season last season. There's a mixture of awe and envy. Like what I could, would, or should do if I had me some dragons. I am so worried about the character arc for Sansa. I can't tell you because I went from hating this character to liking this character and I'm starting to feel like I'm gonna end up hating her again. Now the next scene starts as Daenerys and Jon enter Winterfell's courtyard, and it is shot from behind the group, the reception line, right basically. And Bran is the first person you see at the back of his head, and you could tell it's Bran because you could kind of see the outline, the faint outline of his wheelchair. Now this is really interesting because it is a distinct callback specifically to the opening season season one scene one kind of thing in Winterfell and instead of Bran being up on the parapets or up on the roof tiles ceiling tiles roof tiles roof tiles of Winterfell looking down and then hopping down and running into the receiving line with his father and his mother and the rest of his siblings he's on the ground he's grounded Strangely enough, if you've read the books or you remember the beginning, I think it's mentioned in the show, it's been so long since I watched season one, but that the three-eyed raven, according to the show, with three-eyed crow in the books tells Bran that he may never walk again, but he will learn to fly. And so here we have a very solid image of Bran as the grounded raven, right, and he is watching with the sort of keen wit and clever intelligence that um, crows and ravens are known for. So he is observing this in his silence, which is kind of creepy nowadays because he used to be kind of a boisterous young lad, but it's really interesting to see this from his perspective again, but this time not from up high where he was arguably flying, right? To now where he's grounded, This is some clever foreshadowing. I'm not really sure. But as they come in under that. Portcullis. Jon and Daenerys. Jon. The camera focuses from back of Bran to Jon specifically. And Jon approaches everyone first. Just like Robert Baratheon was the first off his horse. The first to present himself. To Ned Stark and his family. He was the king. King Robert Baratheon. We now have John Snow king in the north, but not really. He is now Lord Snow of something. I don't know what because Sansa's Lady of Winterfell. So what John is politically at this point beyond a general for Daenerys' army, I'm not entirely sure. C- Queen consort? I don't think he even has that title yet. But the foreshadowing is pretty epic because. As those of us who've been watching the show and those of us who've read the books know, John is actually the only legal heir to the Iron Throne. Daenerys is, of course, a legal heir to the Iron Throne as well, but she would be behind John by legal terminology, according to Westerosi law, which is something, if you read any of the extra books that have gone along with the Song of Ice and Fire Like, I have, like, um, Fire and Blood, which is the Targaryen family history. There is a way in which that is handed down. Generally, Jon would be considered with the best claimant. His father was Rhaegar Targaryen, Daenerys' brother. And Rhaegar Targaryen was the Lord of Dragonstone, which made him the Crown Prince. In the same way that the French, Assignation for the Crown Prince of France was Dauphin, right? The Prince of Dragonstone or Lord of Dragonstone was supposed to be the next in line for the Iron Throne. So John Jon walks in and this is his first thing is he sees Bran in that chair. Because, I mean, he's been back and he's seen Sansa, as we all know. Arya is still not here at this point. So everyone else John has seen previously except Bran. And now he gets a chance to see Bran. And it's pretty emotional for him. Oh, the boy who plays Bran, Isaac, is amazing. John, of course, approaches him and hugs him and kisses him as a brother would to his other brother. And Isaac is different now. You know, Bran is not the same guy. He's not the same little boy. He is either so connected to the Weirwood network and so turned on as a mystic and a seer that he has lost essential parts of what used to make him Bran. Or there have been some tinfoily fan theories that actually the original Three-Eyed Raven, who, or Three-Eyed Crow, which would be Blood Raven, also a Targaryen, to be truthful if you read the histories, has taken over his body. I'm not sure I believe this fan theory. It'll have to play out in the books and it's certainly not, I don't think, part of the show. I don't think this is some place that the showrunners would have wanted to go. It's a lot of stuff to complicate it even if it is true as far as what we're going to see eventually. Should John uh should George finish this series of books? In this receiving line, there's an interesting moment after John moves away from Bran and his reunion where Bran's gaze goes to Daenerys, Daenerys Targaryen and she looks back at him. Her expression is deeply uncomfortable. There's something about Bran's ability to see and see through a person, I think, is really unsettling to folks. And of course, Sansa is looking at all of this and kind of smugly because you know it's Sansa she's learned Cersei's smugness which I really kind of want to see slapped off her face now John goes to Sansa of course and gives her a hug and the first thing out of his mouth to her is where's Arya now this is interesting to me only because in the first season second season and in the first book Sansa, of course, is taken, basically, prisoner by the Lannisters after Robert Baratheon's death. And Sansa goes into a meeting with Cersei and the small council, and they bully her, basically, into writing everyone in the Stark family and her cousins and every uncle she has and asking for them to come to King's Landing and bow the knee to King Joffrey. And she never once asks about where her sister Arya is and she's been cooped up for like three, four days in a tower and she gets this meeting and she never once asks about that. What she mentions or in her inner dialogue in the book, her point of view is a question about that. She leaves and realizes only later that she never asked about Arya. So there's a kind of an interesting little tie in there because Sansa was never that concerned about her little sister. They didn't get along well when they were small, but Jon and Arya were very close. And so Jon returns home and he sees Bran, which of course he would be most concerned with Bran since Bran had his terrible accent and Jon has not seen him since he left for the Wall. But now we have him, the the first question he asks after all of those things are done is where is Arya? And I think that's very telling. Jon has a very strong attachment to Arya and Arya to Jon. It's at this point that Jon introduces Daenerys to Sansa. Now, we all kind of guess this is going to be a little contentious. I I kind of figured it was going to be. Because they're both women who have been molded by really adverse circumstances in their lives. And have come to rely on themselves more than anyone else. And who are a bit closed off. Daenerys is slightly better about sharing power with others that she feels she can trust. Sansa is slightly less so. It feels like, much like Cersei, she's always trying to work the angles of things that other people are choosing or doing into something that suits her own needs and desires. And then I'm not saying that Sansa is entirely... Self-motivated, because clearly she has the concerns of the North and everyone else in mind, too. But she's way still caught up in the politics of everything that's going on in Westeros. She's so far down the road of beating the Night King and the army of undead that I sort of think like she's already skipped past that part. Like it's a foregone conclusion, which I don't think is going to bode well for her long term for the rest of the season. I do have to give Daenerys some props here. She's trying to be nice. Sansa's not even trying that hard. And it's weird. It's a weird thing to see because Sansa is usually the first one, used to be the first one with all the poli- polite, politic, nice things to come out of her mouth. And she has really kind of dropped that persona of being the sweet well-born noble girl and put on the mantle of the icy northern bitch thank the gods old and new for bran the voice of reason here well these women are having a moment of you know posturing against each other bran just breaks in and says bitches we don't have time for this shit the end of the world is coming. You need to get over your own bad selves and get on with it. Because you think you're having problems with each other. You ain't got shit in your head about what's coming. And you need to be there. You need to get back in the game. So as an opening sequence goes, this is pretty decent. Um, I don't have a lot of problems with how it played out. Other than I'm not sure I'm really happy with all of the weird character stuff. It's not to say that I can't expect that this is likely to happen in the books at some point, but then again, I'm not entirely sure either. I don't mind saying that I find both Daenerys and Sansa's characters to be somewhat trying at this point in the show. For a while, I had a lot of high hopes that Danny was going to mature into a leader that you could actually really trust, but I have seen her behave in ways that I think, at least in the show, are not the best. She has an ugly legacy that she I don't think she fully comprehends or fully respects or understands in Westeros. Not that she committed any of the crimes of her forefathers, but she represents a bloodline that brought the people of Westeros through much hardship. As many good kings of the past there were that were Targaryen, there were equal or almost equal numbers of bad kings and a queen who created a lot of bloodshed and hardship. And so she who really kind of made a mess of Essos. I'm not going to lie. And even in the books, they don't, they're not, they don't mince words. George doesn't mince words in the books. She really, there's a lot of political and military failure that takes place in and around the various slave cities of Slaver's Bay that she conquers. And she leaves kind of a real flaming dumpster when she decides finally to go to Westeros. It's sort of like, oh, I've made all the mistakes I'm ever going to make in Kingcraft and I've learned everything I need to learn and now I'm going to go to Westeros. And she gets here and she does a few smart things. It's slightly more pragmatic of a rule than she had in Essos. But at the same time, she really has started to buy her own press that she is the blood of dragons, and that she's some kind of savior. And unfortunately, it doesn't translate well when you're dealing with a bunch of people who fought their last war to depose your batshit crazy daddy. And then there's Sansa, who seems to have forgotten all the good lessons that she was taught as a child, and replace them with all the bad lessons that she was taught by at the hands of Cersei and Littlefinger. She's a little on the paranoid side. I'm not really supportive of that. Although I understand why she is. And you get the character development to make that seem reasonable. But at the same time, she's not using what she used to know so well, which is how to kiss ass and continue on about doing what you want to do. She's made it really clear. She's like staked her foot in the mud in this opening scene with her interactions with Daenerys, that she's not going to be pushed around, that she doesn't like Daenerys, she's not happy with John, and she doesn't really give a shit what anyone thinks about that or how that's going to be interpreted. At the end of the day... Whether or not she accepts that Daenerys is the queen or no. The last thing they need, and this is of course Jon's pragmatic thinking and Davos's as well, which is you cannot fight a war on three fronts. They can't fight the army of the dead, can't fight Daenerys and her army and Cersei at the same time. So you have to pick. You don't make peace with people that you like. You make peace with people that you didn't like because there's a common enemy or it behooves you both sides to do so and Sansa has not yet figured out that she can't always get it her way and she's not the most powerful woman in Westeros at the end of the day she does not have 100,000 Dothraki screamers 10,000 unsullied and two dragons who breathe fire she has a bunch of battered beaten starving under-trained and mostly old men and little boys army because that's all that's left in the north after the war of five kings that she doesn't really have what she thinks she has in terms of power yes politically she has all these people who would agree with her but it won't make them capable of beating Daenerys or usurping Daenerys's obvious military prowess and forces at this point point in order to make a point that Daenerys isn't wanted. If Daenerys decides that she's not wanted enough, she can just go kill them all and still fight the undead. She may not do as great. She won't know the land as well. The Dothraki might have more of a difficult time. The Unsullied might have more of a difficult time. There may be difficulties, but at the end of the day, we all know dragons kill whites. There's going to be some problem there. Granted, there's going to be some dragon on dragon violence, clearly, since the other dragon is now in the hands of the Night King. But at the same time, this just seems like really poor diplomacy, decision making, and political savvy on the part of Sansa. And we had all been sort of led to believe that she had developed to the point where she was an actual political animal here and she's not really showing it, unfortunately. And Daenerys, we know, she only has one political animal thing, which is be nice until they tell you no, and then you remind them that you have two dragons and a huge army and you will literally fucking destroy them if they don't do what she says. That's you know which whatever I I I'm just like that's my answer for why I don't I'm not too keen on either of these characters right now. Just I'm just really not. Now the next scene takes place in Winterfell's Grand Hall. And we have John and Sansa seated at the Lord's high table. And Daenerys kind of lurking around in the background. And they're going to go through the roll call of Lords. And John's going to get called out here. Um, because they made, last time any of the people in the North saw him, they made him king of the North. And then he comes back... A Targaryen lackey. They're really, really not happy. We do get to meet one of the young lordlings that Jon makes. Much to Sansa's chagrin, this is something that took place in in last season, so I'm not going to get into it too much, except to say that this is an interesting bit that we have this little lordling um, who later we're going to get a big shocker. Now, as a part of this, John, of course, sends them to bring the Night's Watch to Winterfell because the wall's down. So there's no point in the Night's Watch hanging out the wall, watching the backside of the Army of the Dead. So they'll have to come to Winterfell to make a stand. What people don't, well, I don't want to wreck that yet. But young lady Lyanna Mormont, who is, if I remember correctly, the granddaughter of... Jor Mormont, who was John's knight, com- er, knight commander at the wall, and Jora Mormont's niece is the Lady of Bear Island now, and the head of House Mormont, and she is the one. Of course, she is to take John to task for the North, saying you call. She calls him her Your Grace to start with, which is the title given to the king or queen in in Westeros. You call them your grace, not your highness or your whatever, it's your grace. So she refers to him as your grace because he, to her, is still king of the north, regardless of the fact that he dropped the knee to Daenerys Targaryen and is calling her queen of Westeros. And Little Liana, she's like, I don't know, eight, nine years old. And she's just going to rip him a new one here. Everybody loves her. And by the way, she's totally a fan service character because she was only supposed to be in like two episodes. But because fans loved her so much, the writers and HBO wrote in more, way more of her part, which is okay. This is one of those fan service things. It's okay because I kind of like her. She's a spunky little brat. Now, this is also a moment of uncertain. And there's a lot of tension in this room, okay? So the northern lords are pissed at John for obvious reasons. John doesn't also know that he's actually the king. But, you know, that's beside the point. And Tyrion is, of course, Daenerys' hand. And the last the north heard or knew of at all, Tyrion was a major player in the plot that got Ned Stark, the originating lord of Winterfell, Beheaded in King's Landing at King Joffrey's behest. Like Tyrion was the starter, fire starter, according to everybody's knowledge, except the most most intimate, which is unfortunate because it'd be great if they just tell people that Tyrion had nothing to do with that. But you know why? It just builds all kinds of you know tension. um So Tyrion gets up after everybody's mumbling and grumbling and pissed off at John, saying listen I could either bend the knee and bring allies or I could have not bent the knee and then we could have been fighting the army of the dead alone which is like how much more logic do you need but they're all whining and bitching and pissing and moaning and Tyrion gets up and says his piece about you know hey if we all live through this it'll be because Jon Snow did this And we have two dragons and a big army and the Lannisters are coming. And of course, this does not go over well with the North. They hate the Lannisters. If there was one group of people that they could end, like... Before, during, or after the fight against the undead, it would be the Lannisters. And everything that Cersei and her father Tywin before her had built, they would take it down to the ground with every stone of it. They hate them. And Tyrion is, because he is also a Lannister, is just a symbol of this. And they were really not impressed by his momentary attempt at, I don't know, diplomacy. So I'm not going to qualify the end of that scene. Because Sansa Daenerys just stooped to more stupid angry bitch moment. I hate it. It goes the next scene goes to the courtyard and Gendry's arrival with all of the Dragonstone obsidian, basically, volcanic glass, um, but dragon glass they call it that was mined back on Dragonstone in last season. That we have found out through the process of the seasons, this material can be used to make weapons that kill White Walkers, kill the undead. And so Gendry is unloading his, his carts of mined material because Gendry is going to be like the chief blacksmith and armor, or blacksmith for John Daenerys and the North's army. Gendry, there's a little buildup. Earlier in the show, in case you didn't know this, and some folks who haven't read the books don't know this, is that the things that can kill White Walkers, which is Dragon Glass and Valyrian Steel, are put together basically with spells and a very specific ancient methods of blacksmithing, which nobody really knows how to make Valyrian Steel anymore. However, Gendry was apprenticed under Tobomat who was. A uh, weapon and armor, a weaponsmith and armorer in King's Landing, who is the only one in Westeros who knew how to rework Valyrian steel. In other words, he could take a Valyrian steel of any kind, a, a sword, which he does with Ned Stark's sword, ice, melt it down, and then makes two new Valyrian steel swords out of that one sword without wrecking it. And Leaving all of the quote-unquote magical abilities of the Valyrian steel are intact when they're, this is done. So Gendry apprenticed under him, and he was one of Gendry was his best apprentice student. So it makes sense that this is the position that they put Gendry in, despite the fact that he's also should be technically Lord of Storm's End, which is the ancestral house of House Baratheon. He should be legitimized. I'm not really sure why Jon didn't do that right away as King of the North, that giving Gendry a title and a name and all those sorts of things, since there are, at this point in the show, no living Baratheons left, but it has not happened other other than him. So we have Gendry doing this and he's getting ready. He's going to be a big part of the preparations for the battle against the undead and his weapons are going to be super important from this stage forward and he may even be a part of how we end up with some other magic sword stuff going on later even in the books now that little shot of Gendry and giving some context for the Dragon Glass brings us to the next scene really it was sort of a transition scene to Tyrion and Sansa's reunion now Tyrion and Sansa were married early on in the series it was a shitty political move that tywin lannister cooked up they never consummated their marriage and in the books she never marries another man at least not up to this point so we're not really sure if her marriage has been annulled officially in the books or not to Tyrion, in the show they had her marry ramsey bolton that was the Battle of the Bastards, for those of you who are just show watchers. Over, done. She's Widow Bolton, right? Sansa Stark. And now her first husband, who may or may not legally have any claim to her or whatever. In either case, Tyrion and her had a kind of a good understanding, despite the fact that their mutual situation and being married to each other was not a choice and not a good one for either of them. Um, and so they're going to have a moment here where they have a reunion and Sansa points out something really clear about Tyrion. Somewhere along the line, Tyrion really did sort of lose his mojo. And the most important of this thing of the scene is that there's still some goodwill, and she clearly still has some trust and value in Tyrion. But when it comes to his family, she points out that he's still blind. And I think that's a really important little bit. So the next scene takes us to the Godswood. In Winterfell. And John is standing outside having a moment, I think, of prayer or reflection with the Werewood Tree. And this is probably the most anticipated reunion is him and Arya's first face to face. And it starts out interesting. The themes of it are kind of interesting on the second watch. Gave me something to really think about here, which is They have a conversation about swords. Arya's sword was given to her by Jon before he left for the wall. It was a parting gift before he left for the wall. And she left for King's Landing with her father as Ned took his position as hand of the king. And she named it Needle because he told her all the best swords have names. And of course... He, she takes it out and he asks her if she's used it. And as we who've been watching the series know, she has a few times. She's been forced to use it. And then she wants to see his sword and he pulls out Longclaw, which belonged to Jor Mormont. It is the sword or was the family sword of the Mormont house. And John was given it when Jor died. So it has become John's sword. John tried to give it to Jorah Mormont um, last season, and Jorah would not take it. So it has actually gone to John, and there's a conversation about it. And he shows it off to to Arya and says, "Are you jealous?" And she said, takes it from him, and she says, "No, it's too heavy for me." Now I think this is really interesting from an analytical standpoint. It's. The difference in their responsibilities to one the family and to Westeros in general. John, heavy is the head that wears the crown. Apparently heavy is the belt that holds up the big sword too. because ja- or Arya is a trained killer, a trained assassin. In all these years since they've spent apart, she's been training to be a faceless man. And so her job is very much one of stealth and cunning where she goes in and she ends a life because the God of death has been paid for that life. And so she has no responsibilities really to anyone except the God of death if she follows the cult. And we are never really given an eye into that either in the books or in the show, um, at least, not at this point, whether Arya is a full on cult member or not. But John is the king, and he has the weight of everyone on his shoulders. Whether Sansa accepts this or understands this, John has taken on the responsibility of everyone. He took on the responsibility of saving the wildlings. He took on the responsibility of running the Night's Watch. He took on the responsibility of commanding the armies at the Battle of the Bastards. He took on the responsibility of King of the North. All of these things were things that John didn't necessarily want to be responsible for. But John, out of his innate need or his innate sense of right and wrong, believed it was his responsibility to be really honest, Arya feels like the only people she's responsible to, it seems, are the Starks, and she makes a remark about that to Jon when he brings up something about Sansa is less than flattering, and and Arya says, "Well, she's just protecting her family, and or supporting them." And Jon says, "Well, I'm her family too." And Arya hugs him and says, "I hope you don't or don't forget that." Which is interesting. There's a lot a mouthful said there. One, the obvious symbolism of Jon's ever-increasing importance to all of Westeros. The emerging of the secret that he is actually the king. And then the whole familial interplay. of He says he's a Stark. And technically he is. His mother was Lyanna Stark, Arya's aunt. But Jon is also a Targaryen which means that he has divided loyalties, which, to Arya's mind, when all this comes out, may become a balance on what Arya decides to do when it comes to who pulls the strings and who she's going to follow or listen to. Should be very interesting. Now, next we get a series of scenes that are basically just plot development, and one scene I think is a throwaway scene, and it's a Kyburn conversation with Cersei about the fact that the wall is fallen. Blah blah blah. Who cares? Cersei being her nasty bitch self is happy because why not? And Kyburn in his natural way is creepy and weird. And then the scene like immediately shifts then to the Greyjoy fleet and you're on Greyjoy along with Harry Strickland, who is a commander of the Golden Company which is a group of sellswords from Essos that are made up and were originally established actually by Targaryen bastards. Many, 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 many years ago, they went into exile, started a group of sellswords, and sold their fighting skills all over Essos for whoever the highest bidder was. This is sort of a throwaway scene, too, at the very beginning, anyway, of Euron and Harry Strickland standing on the prow of Euron's flagship, whatever, who cares. But later in this scene, Euron leaves Strickland's side and goes down into the captain's cabin where he is keeping his niece, Yara Greyjoy, or in the books, Asha Greyjoy, prisoner. And they have a little conversation and she's asking him to just kill her because this is really not Asha's thing to be a prisoner and be helpless and powerless. She's really tough broad. And the situation under which she came to be in Euron's possession is really a mess. And if you watch last season, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And he refuses to kill her because he has plans for her. And he tells her, it's like, who else would he talk to? Because everybody else is stupid except for Greyjoys. But... There's got to be some plan in Euron's head. This doesn't make sense. He's just... Euron in this show is really bad. I'm just going to say that. Now, actor's fine. But the plot lines on this story are just... It's pretty awful. So now this leads... This whole little vignette. This little tiny bit of Euron and Harry Sicklin and... Uh... Asha, leads to uh, uh, the meeting of Harry Strickland, Euron, and Cersei in the throne room, in the Red Keep. And Cersei gets some pretty disappointing news. First of all, we need to acknowledge that I believe Daenerys came across an narrow sea with 100,000 Dothraki screamers and 10,000 Unsullied, thereabouts. Harry Strickland has arrived. A very expensive army, by the way, that Cersei has paid for. She has 20,000 ground troops. She was promised an elephant cavalry. Got zero elephant cavalry. And this is, also, I want to just state, a meta is shit thing. Okay, so there were supposed to be, there should be elephants. The Golden Company are known for their elephants. But HBO didn't have the money. To put elephants and more elephant CGI or something in the show. So they've just like eliminated a plot point based on economics. Which comes in later when Cersei makes a super meta joke. That's like fourth wall breaky as shit. And it's funny within the fandom. There's those who think this is great. And then there's a whole lot of other people who think it's really cheap. I kind of go with the really cheap part. So, in total, Cersei has 12,000 man army. Because there's 2,000 cavalry. It's like the Golden Company is basically fucked. I don't know why they took this job. It must have been a lot of money. And I'm guessing, and so are a lot of people, that they're going to switch sides. At some point in this, they're going to switch sides. Because, why not? I mean... Literally, why not? There's no way that they are going to be able to defeat John and Daenerys' army, and even less likely to defeat if John and Daenerys' army comes to the undead, that they're going to be able to defeat the 100,000 undead, the 115,000. Of John and Daenerys' army, who are now undead and three undead dragons. Because if you think the Night King's only going to take one of them, if he kills them all, that he's only going to... Yeah, it's going to be a shit show. Cersei has basically decided to sit this out, thinking that somehow, if it doesn't work out for John and the rest of them, that she's still going to come out ahead. She's there's a lot of discussion within the fandom of her low cunning is absolutely true. And when she pissed off Jamie, she, that was the best and worst thing ever, because she's got no mind for military matters, not even a little. And it's not, it's not her fault, really, because honestly, her father, Tywin, also is not, was not a military man, not good at it, despite Rumors to the contrary, he mostly just did horrible, committed war crimes and terrified people, so they just did what he wanted. It's not really a military strategy. He's not really good at tactics, so it's a fuck show. And she is just found out basically that she's got saddled with a fuck show herself. So I don't know. She, it's kind of a great scene because it goes from bad to worse. Because at this point, also, Euron promised her. That he would transport this army, and he promised her his ships, and he promised her all this stuff if she promised to like be his, like let him be her consort, king consort or queen consort or whatever. It, like they were good. She basically sold off her pussy for this. And in this scene, he reminds her, "Wait, now I've delivered on every single thing you asked for. Where is the poontang? And at the end of this scene, she ends up having to pay up because the Lannister always pays their debts. Oh, it's glorious. This is one of the only good things about this whole bit here is that Cersei so deserves this. She still thinks somehow in her addled crazy head that this is all going to work out. But honestly, this this is how low she sunk. And this is how bad their situation really is. And when Harry Strickland, I think, figures out what the odds are for him and the Golden Company, since he's already got some of the money, might as well just kill Cersei and plunder King's Landing, take the rest of the money, and then go get the fuck out of Westeros or join the other army. Because, honestly... This is not going to go well. Now, before we leave King's Landing and after the pillow talk part of the conversation between Cersei and Euron, which really is kind of amusing, except for that bad joke about the elephants, we see what I've been waiting to see. This is probably my favorite scene in the entire first episode. Is Theon Greyjoy with the, like, five dudes that survived... Their attack on them by his, their uncle or by his uncle, Euron, and the taking of, of um, Yara and the rest of the Iron Fleet. Theon shows up and they liberate Yara, which is a fucking great scene. It is such a great scene. A <sighs> couple reasons. It's really great. The first one is that Yara is completely shocked, which is amazing. And then Theon like just cold-bloodedly acts as a dude in the face, which is pretty pretty amazing, considering everything that Theon's been through. and his aversion to violence um, that we've seen earlier after he escapes the Bolton's and even while under Bolton um, control is he's not the fighter guy he used to be. He's gone become kind of a craven. and in this scene, he's the first one in the room and he kills a dude and he comes and he saves his sister. And the great part is when he goes to help her up, she headbutts his ass right to the floor. And you're like, yeah, he kind of had that coming because he left her to Euron. His fear of fighting put him in a situation where he did not fight to save her. And then she helps him up. And he calls her his queen. And they embrace. And it's just beautiful. I love, love, love these two characters in the show i think maybe more than i like them in the books even um alfie allen is just amazing as uh theon Greyjoy, and i can't remember her name right now it'll come to me later but the girl who plays his sister yara or asha as she's actually known in the books is really good too their their moments on screen together are really excellent it's exceptional and I really like them. I like this storyline. I'm really excited and happy that Theon came and liberated her. And I also love the end of this scene where, when they are finally on the ships, and I think they managed to take off with like three or four of um, the Iron Fleet, Euron's ships, you see that Theon is having a difficult time with all of this. They need to go north and they need to do whatever and they need to go to the Iron Islands, she wants to go to the Iron Islands and prepare a safe place of refuge for Daenerys and John and the rest of the north because as far as anyone knows, the undead can't come there because they can't can't swim and they can't swim in the ocean. Now, the Night King will be able to come there for sure with his dragon, but that's it. And that may be a setup for us as to where the dance, the second dance of dragons is going to take place, will be the Iron Islands. A lot of people have already supposed that it is exceptionally likely that Winterfell is going to be overrun by the undead and that our friends and, and familiars are going to die. A lot of them, and those that survive are going to be forced to retreat. So if Asha goes or Yara goes to the Iron Islands and creates a safe space for all those people to come to, it's a good that's a good fallback plan to make someplace safe where there's food and warmth and a way to avoid the army of the undead. But we all know that you know the White Walkers or the 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 Night King is going to come for the Starks no matter what. Um, So it's a good setup for where there probably will be the dragon-on-dragon combat is more than likely to take place on the Iron Islands. I think that's being foreshadowed here pretty strongly. Don't know that that's what's going to happen in the books, of course, but it does seem to be where they're leading us for the show. Anyway, Yara says to Theon, because you can see he's conflicted and upset. I love that she gives him a choice to either stay by her side or go fight with John. And I think at this point, Theon feels he owes the Starks everything he can because of what he did when he helped the Boltons basically take Winterfell from the Starks. And forced, of course forced Bran and Rickon and Osha and Hodor and the Reed kids to escape and go north of the wall. Not that they weren't going to do that anyway, but it sort of pushed the envelope for the timing of all of that. Um, And I think it may have what ultimately led to Rickon's death, at least in the show. I don't know if it will be so much so in the books, but I have a feeling that that's it's kind of how that is. And Theon feels responsible. And that he, he was supposed to go get the Iron Islands to come fight for Rob and then turned cloak. So I feel like at this point, as part of Theon's make good storyline, he kind of has to go do this. And his sister understands where his father would never have. Balon Greyjoy would have never understood it. But Yara does. She gets it. The part of being a person is the relationships you have. And it can't, sometimes family is made where you find it, not where you're born to it. If family was where you were born to it, then they wouldn't be in the situation they're in with their uncle Euron. Now the next scene, it transfers us back now to Winterfell. And of course, it's the Dothraki coming to tell Daenerys that the dragons have not been eating very well. And she gets worried because they're her boobas, And her and John go to check on Drogon and Rhaegal. And this is John's first dragon flight. Now, for a lot of people that watch the show and never read the books, they may not really get this. There's very, very fucking few Westerosi who were not blood kin to the originating Dar- Targaryen family who've ever sat on a dragon before. Now there's the original dance of dragons. There was a war of dragons between one group of Targaryens and another group of Targaryens historically, where in order to pump the numbers up on one side, they did a kind of a thing where they went around and looked for people who might be able, the dragons would accept. Lots of people died and only very few actually were able to get on a dragon and the dragon did it, toast them and eat them. And a bunch of those people have been written off as being Targaryen bastards of one ilk or another. The other one that we think might not have been actually Targaryen-blooded was just a really smart girl, and she bribed her dragon by feeding it lots and lots and lots of sheep. And the dragon eventually was like, okay, she's going to feed me, I guess I'll, I'll let her ride me. So John getting on the back of Rhaegal who coincidentally is a dragon named after his father, Rhaegar, is kind of a momentous thing in terms of proof positive that John is a Targaryen. And I don't even know if she understands that at this point. I mean, I don't think Daenerys is thinking about these things, but we as outside observers understand that this is a huge deal. Jon being able to get on that dragon the first time and fly it, and Rhaegar doesn't just nom-nom him... Is like quite a big deal, and then there's some weird, creepy. I don't know if it's supposed to be funny or a foreshadowing moment or what. But after the scene of you know pod racing on dragons, whatever, and no one cares, is when Jon and Daenerys are kissing and embracing, and ooh, and Drogon gives Jon some serious side eye. I'm not really sure what's going on there, but it's a thing. All right, so after that, the next, like, serious scene change, we come to the Forge in Winterfell. And Gendry's working, working, working like a slave. He's working, and he's talking with Sandor Clegane, um, the Hound, and has made Sandor an axe of glass, Which looks pretty cool, although the lighting in these scenes around the Forge are kind of crap. So I couldn't at least really make out any detail on that axe. Maybe somebody else has better screen resolution than me can. But it's clearly a big old broad axe, though, made for Sandor to use to fight undead. pretty cool. And Sandor's looking it over and he's whatever and being Sandorish, kind of a prick. And then Arya shows up. Now, because those two had a pretty close... Relationship as traveling companions, and and her wanting to kill him, and him, him being a faithful hound and protector of her. Um, there's a little interplay there that's great because the last time they saw each other, Aram, Arya refused to kill him to give him the gift of mercy and kill him, put him out of his his misery since he'd gotten his ass royally kicked by brianne of Tarth. So instead, Arya leaves him to die. And he, of course, lives. And then she goes to Bravos and becomes an assassin. So this is the first time they've seen each other since. And you, they drop right back into that kind of cold, snitty, shitty interplay between the two of them. That's like kind of like siblings and kind of not. It's an interesting little thing. And then that's over, which is a great face to face. It's exactly what you expected. Although I have to tell you, I did a little fan service moment go, oh, come on, just hug it out. I kind of wanted, <laughs> I know it doesn't fit with the characters, but I had that thought. Come on, just hug it out. And then Sandor goes off, and it leaves Arya to have her face to face with Gendry, which she has not. And. He is clearly still taken with her, or more taken with her, because she's grown up from a little girl to a young woman, and he's, I think he's attracted, and she's, I think attracted, but she's so fucked up from all the shit that's happened to her, that I'm not sure. Like I said, I don't know. Everybody wants that shit, but I i just don't know if it's going to happen. So now we get to a shitty moment between Sansa and Jon, where... Sansa gets a raven message from House Glover that they have decided to fuck everybody because Jon's no longer king in the north and Bentonita the is Daenerys Targaryen. And Sansa, of course, makes it very clear she does not approve of any of this. And that Jon's being stupid. As far as she's concerned, Jon's being stupid. And to some extent, I guess maybe, but he doesn't have all the answers and neither does she. And she... I don't know what she would have expected, and I don't know what she thinks they what their chances for survival against the Night King would have been without Daenerys. I don't know if she thinks she could have wiggled a better bargain out of Daenerys or what. I don't know, but it's shitty. It's a shitty moment, and there's some tension. And I'm didn't like it. I mean, I loved it, but I didn't like it, right? Because I mean, I don't want them fighting. I don't want Sansa to be such a douche, and I don't want John to be dumb. these are things so hopefully somewhere along the line either she gets less douchey or he gets less stupid but at any rate so we are in her judgment less stupid i'm not really sure how that's gonna fly the deal is however that john's done basically what she did which is another thing that i'm waiting for somebody to bring to her is when they went to do battle of bastards they were vastly outnumbered she asked john to go fight Ramsey Bolton with a spit and a prayer and held back from him the whole time that she had asked Littlefinger to bring the Veil vale army to the last fucking minute. So she went and got help from somebody that, yes, and no good, bad. I mean, it's hard to be mad about it after the battle's over, right? But. She did. She played games with the devil to get there, and so now she's pissed at John for doing taking something out of her playbook, except that he did it all above board, which I, Sansa really. Um. So this scene is like crappy, and then she comes at him with, "Well, did you bend the knee because you had to, or did you bend the knee because you're in love with her?" Which is a fair point. Sansa's got a fair point. John is in love with Daenerys did he need to bend the knee? I don't know. I think Daenerys was in his pocket at that point after she'd seen the things that happened up north and how one of her dragons died. I think she would have given him what he wanted. And she basically told him he could have what he wanted. And then he called her your grace and bent the knee because whatever. Of course, he also did get to, you know, make her sowsier into a silk purse. So there's that. But it's, I don't know, the whole thing's kind of like shitty. And I really hope the books do a better job with this whole bit of the story. And this leads into another important scene for the development of the story going forward. Daenerys goes with Jorah Mormont to find Sam Tarly so that Sam can collect his reward or they can bestow upon him his reward for curing Jorah of Grayscale. This does not go the way that they anticipate. For reasons that Daenerys was too blind, or not in tune enough, to foresee, and that is that. Episode six of last season, she immolated Sam's dad and his brother because they refused the knee to her. Now, you may argue that that's her right as a monarch, but maybe. Burning them alive wasn't a good idea Um, with her dragon. So she shows up thinking, I get to be all beneficent here and give a guy a thing because he did a thing for me. And then her and Jorah have the unfortunate situation and circumstances to then explain to Sam that they killed his father and his brother. Now, knowing the history, you can see where... Sam was like, oh, damn, my dad's dead, and that sucks, and I'm sorry about that. Except, you know, my brother's a good guy. And his brother, arguably, in the show anyway, was Dickon was pretty decent to him. But then they land on him, no, your brother's dead too, because he refused to stand down. And then Sam is upset. Now, Sam is a quote-unquote craven. We've seen Sam show more courage in this show than he ever would have given himself credit for and his father ever gave him credit for or anyone else wanted to give him credit for except maybe Jon Snow. And so he tells her kind of what he thinks and how he feels about it. And it's clear Sam's really upset. And at this point, he doesn't really care that she's the queen or anything else. She killed his family and he's really hurt and upset. And he leaves. And he goes outside and where he f- goes across the courtyard and he finds Bran sitting there in his wheelchair, being kind of creepy and three eyed ravenish. And Bran says, Listen, we have to tell John the truth and we have to tell him right now. He needs to know that, Den- you know that he's the king. So Sam goes off to tell John this. And there's a great little scene in the Crypts of Winterfell between John and Sam about this until Sam points out to John. He says to John, So, what did you do when this happened? And John says, Well, I, you know, John basically acted with mercy in a certain circumstance and, and blah, blah, blah. And then he says, Yeah, well, would Daenerys do that? Like, I laid down my crown to save people. And John, or Sam looks at John very pointedly and says, Well, would she do the same? And I think John is going to start to get a clue of course he doesn't believe that he's a Targaryen there's something about this is he's still a little in denial and clearly that's understandable but Sam's saying no listen you're the king she's not the queen and you need to do the right thing here because she is not the leader that you'd like her to be you are the leader that you'd like her to be and we see a parallel to this right earlier on Ned gave Robert the the throne he helped fight and win it for him and he was the first one in king's landing and he's the one that found jamie lannister guarding Eris' throne after he had killed the mad king and sansa or not sansa cersei points this out to ned in season one and then in the first book that john or that ned should have just taken the iron throne for himself right then he was there he had he should have taken it But he didn't because honor and loyalty and friendship, right? Which it worked out. Yeah, well, that worked out for everybody. Except it's still a right thing to do. Ned still did the right thing. But John has an opportunity right now, if he only understood the parallels, to make a different decision. And it might come down to that, that he needs to make a different decision. So this scene goes from that to this, and then we get the next scene. So the next scene picks up outside the, I believe, the Carstarks. No. Oh, someone's going to light me on fire for not remembering. But one of the Northern Lords, the young Northern Lord I mentioned earlier in the episode, he went home. To get his people and bring them back to Winterfell. And. You. It's the Brotherhood Without Banners. And Tormund, Giant Spain. Who come there. On their way from the wall. Where they were at Eastwatch. I think. When the well fell. To find shelter. I'm guessing. And they show up here. And they find that the hold is empty. Blood everywhere, no bodies. This doesn't bode well. This, of course, means that the army of the dead have already been here. And they're investigating the hold. And they come across Abd, who is the new commander of the Night's Watch. That's who John leaves in charge when he leaves to go south. So they hook up with the remainder of the Night's Watch. And they... Explore some more. And there's a horror scene that's fairly well shot and good. There's a tiny joke in the middle of it. I liked. I'm not going to... You know, if you haven't seen it entirely or whatever, we don't have to discuss it. It's like, doesn't have to be moment by moment. But it's a good scene. Sets up some pretty ridiculous stuff. Like, we all were wondering how the hell all of them lived through what happened at Eastwatch. But they survive Anyway, um and what it really serves to do is, one, to remind us, yes, the Army of the Dead are still coming. Because we haven't seen them all episode. And to also point out that now the army of the dead are between the wall and Winterfell. So basically the Brotherhood Without Borders and the remainder of the Night's Watch and torment, and I'm guessing some number of wildlings, are going to be trapped behind enemy lines. So this is an interesting bit. And now we come to the final scene of this episode, which is kind of, has been for me a very heavily anticipated bit. As we all know, the last of last season, Jamie Lannister left King's Landing, gave up his Lannister arms and all his craps, trappings, and put on a dark cloak and got on a horse and headed north. So this is Jamie's arrival in Winterfell, which he has not been in since he crippled Bran in Season 1, Episode 1. Whew. Now, I want to backtrack just a minute, because I forgot a bit. When Sam comes out from talking to Daenerys and Jorah Jor- Mormont, he runs into Bran, right? And I said that, but Bran says something else to Sam there, he said. Because Sam asked Bran, what are you doing out here in the middle of the night? And Bran says, I'm waiting for an old friend. So you're kind of like, okay. Sam, your new friend, old friend? Not really sure. It's kind of weird, but it's a little foreshadowing. Because as Jamie gets off his mount, much like he did in episode one, he looks around the courtyard of Winterfell like, oh god, I hate this place. It's cold and these people are dirty and grubby and it's not what I'm used to. And as he scans... The courtyard, his eyes fall on Bran in his cloak, in his wheelchair, just staring at him, having been waiting for Jamie to arrive. This is a face to face that's kind of a big deal. It is probably going to set the tone for the rest of the Battle of Winterfell from the land from the everybody but the Starks position Jamie's arrival in Winterfell is got a few bangs for its buck first is Bran and dealing with the fallout from what he did to protect the secret of him and Cersei's incest by trying to kill Bran and then there is facing down Daenerys Targaryen whom he killed her father when he was a sworn knight of the king's guard and by oath supposed to protect her father he instead killed her there's going to be many words I'm guessing in the next season or the next episode that resolve these plot points but it may not necessarily work out the tension for everybody involved and I think it's going to be an interesting part of the next episode because we also haven't seen Brianne much and I think they're saving that up for this moment when Jamie is basically going to be called on the carpet for the sins of his past and I think it's going to be up to Bran who knows and understands now why Jamie did all the things that Jamie did and Brianne to save Jamie from a mob of northerners who are going to want to kill him and from a queen who's going to want vengeance for the death of her father it's a good setup for next week. I like it they save this scene for the end. I really do. Um, I don't know. My overall of the entire episode. Is a mixed bag. There's some really great moments in this. In terms of character development. And. I really enjoyed those moments. There are some real dogs in this. Episode as well. From both a show watching perspective and a book reader perspective but I guess it comes out as a level neutral um it does end on a high note which left me with a kind of a good feeling about it I am looking forward to next week because I have a feeling that it'll be a little more settled into what we actually need to do beyond all these plot threads being needed to be knotted up in the beginning here so we'll get through all that but Or we got through all that. I think, in terms of being able to do the functionality of getting that all sorted, I think they did okay. It does feel a little mechanical, but it's okay. Next week will be better, I think. I hope. Um, but yeah, it's a mixed bag. There's some really great things, the high moments. I guess, as I said earlier, my there are a couple. I love the scene with Sandor and Arya having their reunion. I thought the scene between Jon and Arya and their reunion was really interesting for what it might be symbolizing and it might be foreshadowing. I love the scene with Theon rescuing Yara. I thought that was really great and I really like this last scene between Bran and Jamie. And I'm looking forward to next week's episode. Now, I'm not going to do this every week because then this would turn into a got podcast. And so that's, but we will do another one at the end of this season. do a roundup and maybe I'll do two. But one of them is going to be with my friend, Mike Bubbers from Millennium Fandom. And him and I are going to go through it. Him as kind of a novice watcher and me as a seasoned book reader and episode series watcher. I think it'll be fun for us to like round it all up and take a look at all the plot points and go, wow. So that's how you tell a story or not. We'll see. Um, but anyway, so that was my first impressions of season eight, episode one, final season of the international television sensation of Game of Thrones written by George R. R. Martin. Well, that was fun, and then we get to the crack pottery part of the show, the cracked off-the-rails ranting, I might do. Um, today, and for the last several days, I have really been sort of avoiding major news stories. I, I hate to admit that, but it's true. I just um mentally haven't had the headspace for it. Some of it, I suppose, it was work. And I was really stressed out, but um a lot of it was just this whole business with the Mueller report. Mueller report is just making me furious in ways I can't even begin to explain. That's been a huge deal. For me, because I just don't understand where the Democratic Party leadership thinks they're going. We're literally between Assela and Charybdis, and they just keep, you know, just keep making for the bigger hole. I I am disappointed in their behavior. That's just the end of that. We have a... A terrible field of candidates and I don't mean that in that none of the candidates for the upcoming presidential election are bad or, or none of them are good I'm not saying that what I'm saying is what I think we're going to end up doing is exactly what the Republicans did to themselves last time so we're going to feel the candidate that is most definitely not the right candidate for this election or even for the country Because we have so much crap that is being put in front of us that's just not useful. Just none of it's good. I'm going to be the first person to admit that I am a pretty staunch socialist, democratic socialist, and maybe further left than that in general. So Bernie last time was my candidate of choice. And he remains my candidate of choice. I'm not going to lie about that. And I don't make any apologies. I am very much behind Elizabeth Warren. She's made a couple little cultural missteps. I think that she can bounce back from if she acts with humility and is capable of showing some empathy for those people that she sort of dismissed with her insensitive suggestion that, you know, she's, understands empathetically or through life experience, the experiences of indigenous Americans, because that was just really, really poorly done. But... I'm not enamored with Beto O'Rourke like a lot of people are. I mean, I think that as far as Texas politicians go, he's certainly better than most. But, um, wow, there's a lot to unpack there, even if you only believe half of what Jeremy Scahill and Glenn Greenwald are saying over at The Intercept about Beto even if you only believe half of it, it's still a lot to unpack. And I'm not particularly interested in another fence post sitting moderate demo publican being fronted as our savior. Because folks, if you make less than seven figures a year, he's not your friend. They're not your friends. And I know you think you belong to the middle class, but when we have the crop of billionaires we do in this country, you do the math in any way that makes sense, and you're you're just scraping by at the top of it. At the top of the working class. The distribution of wealth is does not put you in the middle class. It puts you just barely above being poor, and. Most of the people I know who make that kind of money are so leveraged out on credit that they might as well be poor. Because it comes in and it goes out just as fast. So it's it's ridiculous the suggestion that anybody I know personally is in a financial situation where they can claim to be upper middle class or even comfortably wealthy. They're not. Not even a little bit. That's a delusion. So believing that the tax deal that these people allowed Trump to pull over on us was good for you. Believing is like believing anything Bill Clinton did was good for you. The reason that we're in this shit situation is because of Bill Clinton, just in case anyone cared. And I'm saying that as a lifetime Democratic voter, except for Bill Clinton. I literally voted for Ross Perot both times because Bill Clinton was not a Democrat. He's another Demopublican, Republican. He's a fiscal robber baron like the rest of them. He's another bank man. And so, you know, that's I, I just don't see that. Kamala Harris, no way in hell would I ever vote for that woman. That gal from Hawaii, she's got a long road to hoe for me. And I love that we have, maybe, if Cory Brooker comes out of the closet, two gay males running. But Cory Brooker's taken so much money from the banking industry that he's, and the mass comm I- industry that he has basically recused himself as a viable candidate for me. And this other fella, I don't know. I got to see more. I, I'm not entirely impressed with his presentation, and I and I I don't know where I don't know that his policy points are are things that I really follow. Other than he's got a lot of really buzzy words, and he's gay, and that seems like a thing. But you know, I also lived through the '80s here, where we had a few different governmental officials who came out as homosexual after they were elected and they were all republicans and extremely conservative and anti-woman and anti-education and a lot of other things so being gay isn't a pass for being a conservative or being a moderate it's not a pass for that sorry i'm not gonna just go but i'm gonna it's like the whole last the false dichotomy that feminists my fellow feminists wanted to put us in with the last election which is you either were a feminist or you did you know and voted for hillary or you were an internal misogynist and you voted for anybody else i get it but i don't get it there are two previous seats in the united states government that you never want to make that person then a president And the first one is the director or deputy director of the CIA. And I would say that you could extend that to the NSA as well. These people are professional mobsters for the government, no matter what anyone else tells you. At that level, that high up the chain, they are calling the shots on stuff that they don't want us to know because if we knew about it, we'd put an end to it shit like toppling foreign countries governments training what became al qaeda and arming it i mean these are the people that are in charge of these brilliant ideas so you don't want them iran contra do i need to say more so like that's not a qualifier for being president george bush senior should have never been a president that it, it he wow People just like, wow. So, and the other is Secretary of State. You're talking about the people that have the most blood on their hands. They're the ones that provide the president, whoever that is, with plausible deniability for war crimes. And Hillary had as much blood on her hands as any other Secretary of State that has ever sat in the Cabinet. It's ridiculous. And I'm not even going to get into all of the rest of the shenanigans and chicanery that her and her husband perpetrated on this country when they sat eight years in the White House. But they're not your friend. They are also bankers' people. And Hillary is clearly banker's people enough that she's willing to draw blood in order to see her supporters on Wall Street further gilded. Anybody who's got any questions about this needs to like, go to your U.S. history books and look up the Gilded Age. Just Just read a little bit. And I would suggest for anybody who really cares about politics in this country that you pick up Howard Zinn's book, The People's History of the United States, and read the book from cover to cover. Anyway. So Pelosi and friends, the banker's dozen that, run or think they run or are effectively do run because, I mean, they basically got a chokehold over political power in Washington and are cock blocking actual progressive and left leaning candidates and policies for no reason other than the, their banking overlords, the men and women who hold their leashes don't want them to support it. are. ...playing a bad game of hacky sack with this Mueller report. Yes, there's a lot here. We're going to spend more taxpayer money investigating it. But we don't really think that we need to, like, right now delve right into impeachment. Oh, fuck you! You know, the Republicans in the 70s had more moral courage than you guys. They took Nixon to task... Don't be a bunch of babies. Good God! And front some candidates who actually care about the working class, and you won't have to worry about Donald Trump. Because you know how he got there? He didn't get there because everyone who voted for him is a racist. Or everyone who voted for him didn't graduate from high school. Or everyone who voted for him worked on a farm. People voted for him because he said shit that mattered to people who didn't have the time or the energy to think hard enough about their economic situation of being a member of the working class, the blue-collar world, and understand that all of the social issues and the issues of taxation are all red herring bullshit things that are propagated and floated around in order to get them fomented against any actual progressive movement forward in this country. They don't understand that they're voting against their better good because the Democrats who are also in the employ of the banks the same of the way the Republicans are, it doesn't behoove them to explain to them exactly what's going on. Which is that the rich are getting richer and everyone else is getting poorer. Good God, people. So we're going to have this field, this glut of, of moderates who are going to, pick away at pieces and parts of the democratic socialists policies and swallow them whole just enough to diffuse the message so that at the end of the day, whoever we get is going to be more of exactly the same as what we got with Barack Obama and Bill Clinton and the rest, which is we might get to maintain some social freedoms we may be able to overturn the ban against transgendered service members. We may be able to protect relationships, legal marital relationships for people of, the, of whatever genders in whatever combination they wish to be in. We might be able to protect a woman's right to choose. We might be able to protect a, some of that stuff. But if it comes down to the bare economics, which is whether we're going to be able to have money in Social Security, which the United States government under Ronald Reagan stole money out of and refused to pay back. And everybody since has stole from and refused to pay back. So now that we are going to be insolvent in Social Security and they what did they say another three years We might be, you know, that that won't get done. They won't stop that. And we won't get a healthcare system that works and a health payment system that works. We won't get any of those things. We'll just get these little cookies, these little cookies of freedom while we all are wage slaves. And while we all are having our futures stolen from us and our children's futures stolen from us and our environment burns down around us. So while you think about your moderate political positions, I need you to think about outside the box and go as far left as you can turn your car. Literally. Because we cannot right this ship we're going around in a circle and it's all going to the right. The circle might get wider every now and then, so it looks like we're making a divergence from our initial path, but we're not. Authoritarianism, fascism, corporatocracy, these are our these this is our reality. And unless we take a hard turn left, we are going to end up in an autocratic Bank-run state. Watch the Three Musketeers. Ask yourself how that looked. Richie Lou is running the whole thing, the banking and everything else. I mean, Jesus, there's a reason that the French, you know, went after the... The French people went after the French aristocracy and the church, you know. There's the same kind of unholy union going on here between the banks and the government. And we need to have some kind of substantive understanding of like what we should do about campaign finance reform. I am so sick and tired of hearing people say, we need to install term limits. You know what? Term limits are a shit answer to a real problem. It's not going to stop the co- banks and the corporations from buying your candidate. The turnover will just be higher. That's it. If you want candidates that vote for your interests and to care about your interests, then you need to pay to get them an office. And you have to pay more than the banks do, and more than Bezos does, or George Soros, if you're one of those people. You, you need, we need to buy back our elections. And the only way to do that is to throw those people out of them by going with public financing. And doing it like, I think it's New Mexico or Arizona has a model that's very simple, you either get public financing or you get private financing. And if you get private financing, you have to, dis- you have to disclose every single contributor. How much they did and, where, and, and who they were. So that people can see who bought you. If it's not the taxpayers who are supporting you, then we have a right to know all the corporations that bought your ass. And your PACs. Do you know how much easier it would be for us to track what happens if they if they did this? I'd know who I'd vote for. The guy who is getting completely financed by the US taxpayers because he's not taking money from a corporation. He might actually be able to do his job functionally because he's not on US banks or Whomever, Merrill Lynch or whoever's, you know, he's not on their leash. Good Lord. Term limits are a stupid idea. First of all, it violates my constitutional right to elect whoever the hell I fucking want to represent me. It's autocratic as shit. It's a fucking terrible idea. Term limits are a terrible idea. It's not going to stop any of the flow of dark money into campaigns. Get over that idea. But you might want to throw everything you can behind getting rid of the Electoral College. Because that was a criminal conspiracy against the American electorate by the Constitution framers, literally. Just like the fact that senators were originally just appointed by governors, like the House of Lords. There was like no plans to democratize that. In the beginning, that was purposeful, folks, because they didn't want the rabble in charge. The moneyed people and the banking interests and the rest of it won all of it. They won the Federalist argument. They won everything because they had the money to throw around at winning. And that's it's not changed a day since. So if you want things to be different, you have to image the problem. And one of those ways of reimaging it is pulling your head out of your ass and realizing that we don't live in a democracy. We live in a representative republic. And the only people getting represented anymore are banks and billionaires. We are every bit as much victims of an oligarchy as the founding fathers were when they came here. And we were all, they were all being taxed and getting no representation in Parliament in England. It's not any different. And so that's that. That's my rant for today. I had to shorten it up. Because holy shit. I just realized we like broke the two hour level. Too much. Anyway, I'm going to give you a little Mark Croft on the way out the door. You know, think about what I had to say folks. Educate yourself. Be prepared for this election. If you don't like racism, division, hate, and billionaires calling the shots, you need to make some different choices this time around. That's all I have to say about it. Bye. Well, the crow and the raven were sitting on the vine. Watching as the vulture circled in the darkened sky And the crow said, Mr. Raven, it's obvious to me That there's trouble for as far as I